0: This morning I'd like to uh, go back to Acts, to where we're uh, looking uh, in our ongoing Sunday morning series on Acts. We have read and uh, looked at this passage, this large passage, uh, when uh, we did it at City group a few weeks ago. But we'll kind of take a slightly different uh, look at it uh, today, as uh, we think of the church it, moving into a different phase of its early existence. So we have now the church, as we'll see in a minute undergoing great persecution. The first time it undergoes great persecution. And if we we're to ask the question, how is the kingdom of God coming? We know that uh, aspect of the Lord's Prayer is that we pray that God's kingdom will come. Well, how does uh, God's kingdom come? Well, it comes uh, by us living as Christians, uh, faithfully and honestly, but also uh, it, is, uh, it is speeded by people coming to faith. His kingdom is coming as people come into the kingdom and come to faith. And that is happening. And we know that's happening. We know it's happening all over the world. We may be a little bit grieved that it's not happening more here in Scotland. And in Edinburgh, where only a couple of percentage of uh, the population go to any church at all. And where there doesn't seem to be a great movement of God's Spirit, and many people aren't coming to uh, faith in Christ. But we do know that in many parts of the world, in, in uh, South America and in Asia and uh, in, in different parts of Central Asia as well as uh, Southeast Asia. There's many people, many, many people coming to know and uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ. But how does how do people come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, I've said there's two ways primarily that people come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's one way, really. Maybe it just it happens slightly differently. Uh, and I've, I've said that the first way is through covenant uh, conversion. That is that people come to faith through uh, the families they belong to, through belonging to uh, a Christian family, and through the covenant of grace that works through families, which is highlighted very much uh, in our understanding of uh, the work of the covenant, and uh, the promise being to us as believers, and the sign being as to us as believers in baptism, and to the children of believers. And we recognize that, that they are set apart in this great way, and uh, they uh, need to come to faith themselves. But they have this great privilege of being brought up in a Christian home uh, where there are great parental responsibilities uh, and a great church responsibilities, we speak about that when we take the vows, to nurture these children and to uh, point them towards Jesus Christ, to uh, enable them to not be put off the gospel and the truth. And many of us here will have come to faith that way, sort of gently, uh, softly, so that we don't have a dramatic conversion story where we change from one very... uh, maybe atheistic or godless way of living and come to faith. But we've gently been—we've been whispered, as it were, into the kingdom of God, and uh, we recognize that very often that is how people come to faith, through the privilege and the responsibility and uh, the sharing of Jesus with your, from your parents and from your family and from your church family. It doesn't mean that there's not a personal commitment to coming to faith as that child grows up with the privileges and recognizes the need to take uh, Jesus for themselves and recognize uh, that it's not enough to just rely on the faith of your parents, but you take Christ and you recognize the need for Christ uh, for yourself. So, that's what I would call covenant conversion But then I've also called uh, something else, that there's contact conversion. They're really the same thing, but uh, the the way people come to faith is really what I'm speaking about. And that is people who come uh, to faith when we reach out of our comfort zone, reach out of our families, and reach out of our church and uh, where we share our faith in the world in which we live, a world where people aren't Christians, and a, pe- a world that pe- where people don't know about Jesus Christ, and we share the gospel with them, where we're living, whatever we're living, powerful, consistent, and uh, humble Christian lives, and sharing our faith in Christ when we have the opportunity so to do. Um, when our own lives as Christians are transformed by joy, you know, we have that sense of loving Christ and enjoying Him and living for Him, trusting in Him. And when we're not trusting and enjoying Him, we'll probably never share Him. And so, it's a very important reality. If we're not trusting and enjoying Him, we very probably won't share Him. So, covenant conversion and contact conversion. I think one of the things that burdens us as a leadership. Uh, and, and I know many of us also, is uh, there's so little of the latter happening in our context. There's, there's, there's I hope and pray, as we, as we see uh, uh, many uh, children and young people being born into Christian families here, that there will be covenant conversion. But we don't see much contact conversion, and it's quite a sobering question for us to consider. Why aren't there more people who are coming from situations that are they don't have that privilege and don't have that background uh, to know Jesus Christ. Is it that we don't really believe? Is it that we don't have joy? Is it that we're not really concerned about sharing what is so significant and important to us? Have we? Do we lack the confidence so to do? Or are we fearful of being opposed? Now, this is a long passage. We we missed out the middle chapter, which was Stephen's long speech. Uh, which he gave in response to their accusations. Uh, We did it recently in Citigroup. But we do come into, as I said at the beginning, a new phase of this early um, uh, recording of the church in the New Testament. Up till now, it's been really great. There's been thousands of people through contact conversion uh, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Lots of people even with a, a covenant background coming to faith, and the church is just as Corey talked about last week. Jerusalem was a mega church. It was massive. There was hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people coming to faith, and things were good. They were sharing all that they had, and uh, there was a great love and a great communion, a great community. And we come now to this different phase where the church is attacked with very severe persecution and opposition. It's not really what we expect. We want the early picture of the church to be full of roses and good things, But here, very early on, Acts chapter 6, we recognize that a huge persecution begins to happen to the church. And we recognize that God wants us, as believers, as Christians, to learn something very important from this for our own understanding and for our own prayer and for our own lives. And kind of by way of introduction, uh, broadly thinking of, of this this chapter, which introduces darkness and uh, persecution and difficulty, uh, there 's a couple of things uh, that I want to mention that, that I think God wants us to understand not only from here but from his word. The first is, and I want to explain it uh, that comfort right, for the christian comfort is illusory comfort is illusory, okay Let me explain that if we think that when we become Christians uh, that we are given the offer of a life of ease and of comfort on our terms, then that's illusory. It's an illusion. Uh, And it's unhelpful for us to think that, that uh, we come to Christ and our uh, exegesis of the words, our explanation of the words, blessing and joy, biblically, uh, we take these words to mean popularity, a good job, constant health, financial security, good relationships, and the removal of suffering. If that's what we think Christ, uh, the comfort Christ brings is on our terms in this way, then we will struggle in our Christian lives because what happens is that when that doesn't happen in our lives, and each of us battle and struggle with many different realities, then we grumble and blame God. It's too tough. What's the point of becoming a Christian if if uh, we don't enjoy all these good gifts from our Father and that life is great? Because we're believing an illusion and one that's never taught in Scripture. It's never His promise. Jesus has not promised to be a genie in a bottle, uh, the bottle that we rub and bring out, and He gives us our three best wishes. It's, that's not the kind of comfort that is spoken of in Scripture. There is comfort spoken of in Scripture, and it's very genuine and real. But it is founded in our ongoing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our primary comfort and peace and joy comes from. But the paradox is that that same comfort opens up tension and opposition because of who Christ is and because of who we are and the world in which we live. There is blessing. There is comfort but it's not ordinarily on our terms. And it usually it challenges our own concept of comfort. And I think that is a biblical truth that is beginning to be unpacked in this chapter where persecution happens. And it's a truth that is, uh, permeates the whole of Scripture. So comfort is illusory. The second thing that God can uh, speaks from this chapter and, and throughout the whole Bible, of course, is that evil is real. You know, comfort is illusory. on on our terms. And evil is real. In other words, bad stuff happens. How often is that the apologetic of the atheist, that uh, how can there be a good God when bad things happen? You hear that every day. We hear that from people. Bad stuff happens to nice people. Bad stuff happens to Christians. And I I guess it's dovetailed what we mentioned earlier. We know that in the world we live in as Christians, people hate God. And people, therefore, will hate and persecute Christians. And Christians sometimes will hate and be guilty of abusing their faith and the truth that they know to victimize and persecute others. And we see a world uh, and a reality, not just outside, uh, not just on the news, but in our own experiences and sometimes troublingly in our own hearts. That speaks of The reality of selfishness and pain and evil and darkness. But the Bible, while it teaches that clearly personal and world darkness and evil, and indeed uh, a personal uh, source of evil and Satan, it also, its message and its mission to us is to remind us that it's in its death throes, it has been defeated. Absolutely and completely and entirely on the cross, not yet destroyed, but defeated by the work of Jesus Christ and what He achieved on the cross. so the only place for our own sin, uh, the confusion of sometimes the way we are in our own hearts, and uh, the darkness and evil and sometimes persecution that we face in the world in which we live, and of course the opposition that we feel sometimes from personal illness. And uh, death itself, the only place, the only place we can go to, is for the cross, is to the cross, because it bellows out the reality of evil and darkness. Christ faces it heads on, and defeats it, promises its future destruction forever for all who will put their trust in Jesus Christ. And more than that, He says for us, while evil is that reality. He says for us, and we can have the confidence that what is intended to harm us can turn, be turned on its head for good as we look to and as we trust in him. It doubles evil's defeat. And we see that in this chapter. We'll see that uh, as we look at this chapter uh, just for a few minutes as well, a little bit more uh, detail. So as we struggle maybe today with these two concepts, uh, the kind of comfort we get as Christians, and the reality of evil. And we recognize there is only one place that we can go, and it's a repetitive message, and we keep telling it, we keep speaking about this message, about going back to Jesus Christ and looking to Jesus Christ. And it's kind of uh, symbolized and and highlighted in this chapter where Stephen, uh, as he himself is in his death throes uh, to be martyred, looks heavenward, looks towards Jesus, and gets a tremendous vision of Jesus Christ. Uh, but as we, we take that, we recognize that there is truth there that we need to apply for ourselves. We need to keep our hearts and our lives and our focus as believers on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no shortcut for us as believers. There's no other way for us uh, to go. He has opened a way for us to be in relationship with Him, and as we are uh, praying And learning and growing and worshiping, then we understand more about his comforts and recognize where evil and darkness and sin and illness and uh, all of these things, despair, is dealt with and defeated. So, this chapter is really about people who have stayed close to Christ at the very early stages of the Christian church. They've kept close to Christ, and as a result, even in the midst of darkness and in the midst of persecution and opposition, they see many more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ through contact conversion because they remain faithful to Him. And so we see different groups in this passage, and we're going to just look at them very briefly uh, this morning. We see that uh, when, the, when, it hap- when this uh, persecution and opposition happened to uh, Stephen and he was martyred, uh, that the people rose up. The people, the everyday Christians, did the great work of the, new com- of the great commission of God. See, in chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, Saul, the leader, he approved of this execution. Then we say, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Up till now, this, bull- this blossoming church had simply been in Jerusalem. But from this persecution uh, onwards, uh, it moved out, and then uh, we're told in verse 4 that uh, uh, that it was scattered through the verse 1 still, in Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. So, everyone was scattered except the apostles. And then we're told in verse 4, that those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. So, we have a really comfortless situation. And it seems that evil has won the day. The church is absolutely blown apart. There's just uh, a big bomb is dropped right in the center of the church, and the people are just uh, sent out and have to scatter for fear of their lives. Everyone except the pros. Everyone except the professionals. Everyone except the apostles. They stay in Jerusalem. But everyone else, all the ordinary people end up in Judea and Samaria and uh, did this great persecution, which was horrendous and brutal, did it lead to their capitulation? Did, was this early uh, early days of the church, was it, was it submerged by this persecution? Was it destroyed? No, these people left, they scattered, and wherever they went, they preached the word. They shared their faith in Christ they lost everything, humanly speaking. wasn't any of the comfort that maybe they expected, but they knew that they had gained far more, and they knew that they could be used to tell other people about uh, Jesus Christ. And God used the persecution. God used this difficult, dark time to spread the gospel. Indeed, in many ways, uh, it's the fulfillment, of his command to them from Acts chapter 1, where uh, he reminded them of the importance of uh, going out with the gospel, and going out with the gospel not just into uh, Jerusalem, but he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were, but also in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the beginning of this happening. In Judea, and Sumeria. Maybe not the way we intended, not the way they thought it would happen, but we find that what was intended to be destructive and bring an end to the church actually was the means by which the church spread dramatically uh, into the wider society and uh, indeed into the rest of the world. God's strategy, different from our strategy, using darkness, using the evil that was intended to destroy, to bring about good. And it came because the everyday Christians told people about Jesus. It wasn't about the apostolic dynamism or their power or the strength of their personality or charisma. It was the faithfulness, authenticity, and trust of ordinary people. And that's what we stress and have tried to stress again and again here. That it's your lives, it's your lives as you go out with a biblical understanding of comfort and the reality of opposition, yet not within, knowing that, not capitulating to the society or the opposition that we face, and gently sharing Christ by our lives. Preaching by our grace, by our openness, by our warmth, by the way we open our homes and by the way we are able to share the Christ who has transformed our lives. And we seek to do that prayerfully and continue to do that. And seven days of prayer will be coming up. And we focused on these seven days of prayer and praying for three of our friends. And we pray for the opportunity, but we take opportunities to share Jesus with them. So we have the everyday Christians who are looking to Jesus Christ and who were uh, spreading the word powerfully through their witness, but we also have Stephen in the story, and Stephen was one of the deacons that uh, Corey preached about last Sunday. Uh, they set aside deacons in the church, so Stephen was one of them. And uh, we saw last week that the characteristics of these deacons were characteristics we can all share in our Christian lives as we uh, keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. But we see particularly in uh, this uh, passage, the passages that we read, some of the characteristics of Stephen as he uh, went about uh, living his life for Christ and how that had such a powerful effect. He was one who was full of grace and power, we're told in verse 8. He he preached grace. They opposed him because they thought he was preaching against the law and against Moses, so he obviously was preaching that the way of salvation is the way of grace. And his life— had been changed. He went out. We're told among the people. He spoke. We're told in verse ten with wisdom and with a spirit that couldn't be argued against. There was something about him. He was persuasive. He knows his Christ and he knows the word behind his Christ. The sermons, the sermon in, in chapter seven makes very clear that he absolutely knew the Old Testament and he knew uh, the mission of God and he understood. Uh, who God was, and also who Christ was, interestingly, calling him the righteous one. Accused of being a lawbreaker himself by his opponents, and he points to Jesus, who is the law keeper, the righteous one, and the one who, even though he was a law keeper and was perfect, was crucified as a lawbreaker on our behalf. Wisdom and Spirit, the Messiah, but also, he was, there was something memorable about him. Not only could they not argue against Stephen, there was something persuasive and powerful in his character and in, in his wisdom. But he reflected Christ. There was something very powerful about him in his life. And as they gazed on him, we're told at the end of chapter 6, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So he, he, opposi- he so he silenced his opposition, but he also, in some kind of um, i guess mystical way, um, he reflected the love and the grace and the gentleness of Christ as people looked at him, and then, as people heard him saying look don 't hold don 't hold this against them what they 're doing as he is stoned and martyred he said don 't hold that. they don 't know they don 't understand what they 're doing there was this This great face that was shining out. There's another occasion in the Bible where someone's face shines like that, and that's Moses as he comes down the mountain from receiving. Interestingly, what? The law. The law of God. And it's as if God is here saying to all who are watching, You've accused him of law breaking. His face is shining. He's in my presence. He trusts in the Christ who is the law keeper. And I approve of him. And there's this great sense of of God almost uh, giving S- uh, Stephen that peace and that sense of significance, even at the darkest of hours. Now, there's a few verses that I just want to throw up onto the screen, which remind us of the the kind of theology or, or thinking behind a uh, shining face in uh, Second Corinthians three eighteen. And we all with unfeel unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord had been transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. There's that sense in which we can reflect the glory of God in our lives and our faces. Psalm 34 verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 1, who is like the wise? And we know Stephen is spoken of he is wise. And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and The hardness of his face has changed. And Daniel 12:3, "Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars for and ever." And there's this, this sense in which what is almost symbolic but it, real, but it symbolizes a lot of these truths, that here was someone who was very close to Jesus Christ and who was looking at Christ and who is therefore powerful for Christ. With a phenomenal clarity and peace. Yet, comfort? No, he's martyred. Blessing? No, he's stoned by stones. Brutal, brutally murdered. And yet, he was filled with the comfort of God and he was used powerfully in his, what we would say, his shortened life in a, a great way. who were, we're told that, and not a word is, is wasted here, we're told who was witnessing, who, who gave permission for this to happen, and who watched everything that happened. It was Saul. His clothes were placed at the feet of a, a man named Saul. And Saul saw that, and Saul was surely moved and touched by what he saw— who later himself went on to meet Jesus Christ to become the most significant Christian probably in many ways who has ever lived. And so through Stephen's own closeness to Christ and influence on Saul, uh, there was a huge influence for the gospel. And I hope none of us are called to be martyred, uh, but we seek to reflect the grace of God in our lives, even in darkness— and even in opposition, and even when we don't have the comforts that we think God should give us, we remain faithful, and we don't uh, uh, compromise or capitulate our faith. Then very briefly, also Philip is a third person uh, in in chapter 8. It speaks about another deacon, Philip, who goes on uh, to preach the Word. And again, we notice with, with him... He powerfully spoke, and many people came to faith through him because not only of what he said, but his his life, what he did, what he was the miracles he was able to his his exceptional life. so it was action and words, and uh, there was proclamation and, and there was deed, and that remains a very significant and important um, duo of truth in order. That our lives become effective for Jesus Christ, that we proclaim the Christ, but that we live out the Christ by our deeds, and that we do great and miraculous things in his name. May not be the same kind of miracles as were done here, but we can see answered prayers and uh, transformed hearts and new lives uh, from ourselves, influencing others, and we can speak of the Christ who has done that. And we see in that, that section also how Philip, with the gospel, uh, goes out to those who nobody else is interested in, the needy, the damaged, the marginalized. Everyone who wasn't part of the crowd, everyone who wasn't part of the covenant, uh, none of whom shared his morality or his outlook, he showed them grace and miracle in his life, and many of them came to faith in Jesus Christ, they opened up and listened closely to what he said uh, because of who he was. The crowds with one accord paid attention to him, and many came so that there was much joy in that city. So these are ordinary people whose gifts and whose graces we can share and have because of Jesus Christ, who saw many contact conversions because they looked to Jesus Christ even in the midst of persecution and darkness and difficulty, and lived for Jesus Christ with joy and wholeheartedness and enthusiasm. And that is a great model, I think, a great picture for us. And when we're living like that, as I conclude, when we're living like that, what happens? Evil happens and joy happens. we, We can't get away from that reality. Evil happens. We recognize and know and understand that. Chapter 8, verse 3 But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's the paradox, isn't it? That as we are looking to Christ and living for Christ and serving Christ and sharing Christ, the reality is that sometimes our lives are ravaged by evil. We have an enemy whose aim is to divide the church and conquer, to instill fear, to uh, tempt us to capitulate, to just give up, and to compromise. And it's powerful, you know. I find that powerful, these temptations. But we remember and we remind ourselves that God is love, God is victorious, and God is more powerful still. Saul, who went around ravaging the church, becomes the great Apostle Paul. Let's remind ourselves of that. The one who was to destroy the church becomes the one who uh, massively is used by God to build the church uh, in a remarkable way. And can I encourage you today not to give up praying for and loving and serving people like Saul— Maybe, and by what I mean by that is people that you think they will never become Christians. I bet everyone around that time thought, Saul, God, please just nail him. Get rid of him. I wonder how many prayed. Well, we know Stephen prayed for his conversion. We know Stephen prayed that God would not hold it against him. I'm sure that had a powerful effect. But maybe that the people we think are most, least likely to become Christians, Don't give up praying for them, especially if they're your friends, if you know them, if you love them. But even if you don't, just keep praying and recognize what Satan intends for evil, God will use for good when we trust him and recognize where our comforts lie. So evil happens, but also joy happens. So there was much joy in that city. So that's the reality. The two are a reality that we come to terms with but we know where the victory lies. And we know that joy, even in darkness and even in suffering, can be our experience because we recognize that it is temporary. We we miss out if we look from Jesus Christ to give us worldly comforts or if we forget His truth that evil is in its death throes and if we have no confidence in our God and Savior. Pray that we will see that more clearly through his word and that we will see this city of Edinburgh that we love turned, as the New Testament church saw, turned upside down for Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray briefly. Lord God, help us to see you. If there are people here today who have joined us uh, in our worship who don't know Jesus Christ, who think what on earth was the minister talking about for the last 20 minutes there. may Uh, you speak to them. May they search the scripture and may they look to hear and know and understand where their comforts will be found and where evil will be defeated. So bless us now as we move into the joy and happiness of baptisms, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.